to another edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week, we're going to be looking at the case of Mills and Mills, and the citation for this case is 2018 UKSC 38. And this is a family law case that deals with maintenance paid to a wife after the divorce was finalised. So Graham and Maria Mills had previously been married, but got a divorce in 2002. The financial aspects of the divorce were sorted out by way of a consent order, meaning both sides had agreed to the arrangement. This stated that Ms Mills would receive a block payment of £230,000, which could be used to buy a house for her to live in with their son. The advantage of this is that she would not have to worry about a mortgage, which was especially important as she had been suffering with ill health and therefore getting a regular job or a mortgage was likely to prove difficult. On top of this, Ms Mills was also due to receive a regular annual payment of £13,200 to help with bills and cost of living, etc. Problems in this case began when Ms Mills decided to buy a house that costed £115,000 more than the £230,000 received as part of the settlement and therefore did in fact require a mortgage to cover the excess. In the years following the divorce, Ms Mills moved house several more times and the amount that she borrowed increased. Her financial situation was also not helped by the fact that when she sold one property, she didn't necessarily use all of the proceeds from the sale to help contribute towards buying the new property, and would instead spend that money on other things. Eventually, this mode of living simply became untenable, and in 2009, Ms Mills sold her last property and instead began to rent somewhere instead. The legal case that we will be looking at is simply two applications under Section 31.1 of the Matrimonial Causes Act 1973 to vary the periodical payments. It will not surprise you to hear that while Mr Mills wanted to give his ex-wife less money every year, Ms Mills wanted more money. The judge considered both applications alongside each other and it was discovered that not only did Ms Mills not have any capital of her own, but she had also amassed debts of £42,000. Translating this into practical terms, even when the periodical payments were combined with her own earnings, there was still a shortfall of just over £4,000 a year. The question therefore became, should it be up to Mr Mills to cover this deficit? In the end, the judge decided that while Ms Mills' transactions over the period in question had not been deliberately profligate, they were still unwise decisions that had brought her to this current situation, and it would be unfair to make Mr Mills accountable for the actions of his former wife. With that in mind, the judge decided not to alter the amount paid under the consent order at all, and left things as they were. Ms Mills appealed that decision to the Court of Appeal where they found in her favour and held that the lower court judge had not given enough of a reason as to why the shortfall of just over £4,000 should not be met by her former husband. Mr Mills in turn appealed this to the Supreme Court which is where we pick things up. Lord Wilson gave the lead judgment and was keen to point out that there was only one legal point that was being appealed in this situation, whether the Court of Appeal was actually entitled to interfere in the original judgment. 
The argument from the Court of Appeal was that the judge had not given a sufficient reason when it came to deciding not to vary the order, but that is simply not true. The reason was that it is not fair to punish Mr Mills for the poor financial decision-making of his former wife. Explaining this further, it was held that a great deal of discretion is available to judges under Section 31 of the Matrimonial Causes Act, and while that by no means obliges a judge to reject the sort of application made by Ms Mills, it does clearly leave the option open, and certainly does not warrant interference by the Court of Appeal. Indeed, reference was made to other cases that had been decided along similar lines. I don't want to go off on a tangent, but in the 2007 case of North and North, a woman had lost the settlement money from a divorce on an investment that had turned sour. On these relatively similar facts, it was held that the ex-husband was not obliged to make up the shortfall. The reasoning behind this is that the original lump sum was made out with the intention of securing a place for the ex-wife to live. It may therefore be appropriate to reject a claim for rent money when the issue of living arrangements had already been covered in the initial court order. Analysing the factual and legal decisions in this case, I think it is fair to say that the courts got this one right in the end. The judge at first instance not only gave a reason for their decision not to vary the consent order, but that reason was well thought through. Given that Ms Mills was due to have custody of the couple's son, it was right that the original order made some appropriate provision for where they should live. The capital payment of £230,000 was substantial, but also should have been the end of the matter. Mr Mills did nothing to impinge on how that money was invested and trusted his former wife to spend it in a way that would help herself and their son. The fact that she did not use the capital allowance wisely is not Mr Mills' fault, and it's totally legitimate reasoning to conclude that he is not the one who should be accountable. On a legal front, the Supreme Court is right that Section 31 accords a great degree of flexibility to a judge, granting them the, quote, power to vary or discharge the order, end quote. Of course, that power isn't completely unfettered, but it is certainly wide enough to encompass the original decision in this case, so much so that it is difficult to understand the basis for the Court of Appeal overturning it apart from the likely fact that they disagreed with the decision, a point that is not relevant in this context. Meanwhile, a lot of wider discussion in the popular press has centred around the idea of the so-called meal ticket for life, that former partners who are in a less financially secure position should be entitled to support long after a marriage has ended. The argument follows that this case deals the meal ticket a significant blow by not allowing Ms Mills to have the consent order adjusted in her favour. I am not convinced by the premise of this argument and certainly do not agree with the conclusion in the context of this case. If we are to address this however, it is necessary to cut through and note that the use of the term meal ticket for life is deeply unhelpful and Given that in the majority of relationships it is the woman who is less financially secure, it's also misogynistic in its deployment. Unfortunately, the term has found its way into legal circles being used in cases like Murphy and Murphy from 2014, and even in the recent case of Waggett and Waggett from earlier this year. Even the respected Law Society Gazette used the term in a headline, albeit in scare quotes, when talking about the Mills case. 
Whatever people think about the current law as it stands, it is a genuine attempt to achieve a fair result between the parties after a divorce has been finalised, and painting a picture of the conniving ex-wife who is in a class of undeserving poor is not where the conversation should be in 2018, when the reality is that the woman likely surrendered a career and chances at professional development to raise a family. If the payments were instead called the fine for adultery, people would be up in arms about the mischaracterization of how marriages break down and the purpose of the payments, yet we tolerate such lazy stereotypes when they tend to affect a female majority. The way that we use language in and around the law has a significant impact on how we think the justice system is operating as a whole, and while that system should be open to critique, we are not going to achieve progress by knocking down straw men, or in this case straw women. Anyway, not only is the premise of the argument poorly described, but the conclusion is simply wrong. This decision does not change the law as it relates to maintenance payments in any way, and, as we have discussed, simply reasserts the freedom that judges have to make and vary maintenance orders as they see fit, so long as there are good reasons for doing so. Mills and Mills may point to a general judicial trend towards making a more robust approach when it comes to these payments, but is not meaningful in itself, and responsible legal reporting would have recognised this. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this episode, and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. A quick note from me before I let you go. For those of you who have got or are thinking about getting my course on commercial law, just to let you know that there are now two more videos that form a part of that course, um, both on international trade, so things like inco terms and bills of lading, things like that. So if that's part of your course, then I definitely recommend that you check that out at uklawweekly.com slash videos slash commercial. Uh, or you can check out my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Marcus Cleaver. And one of my most recent videos is on the introduction to commercial law, which gives a bit more detail there. Also, a big thank you to two people who have since left reviews of the podcast on iTunes. That is Carolinius and Adam Corbley. Very much appreciated that you've taken the time to do that. Uh, if you want your name read out on the podcast, then you can go to iTunes, find the podcast there and leave a rating and most importantly, a review, which I check on a regular basis. So thank you to those people. I'll be back with another episode next week. In the meantime, bye. bye.